I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I'm looking forward to this episode. I have a very special guest. Won't surprise a lot of you, but another South African. There's a common trend among many of my guests. I guess I just resonate with that. But uh, we have uh, Mark Skipenker. Mark is uh, currently the uh, managing partner at BrightSpark, which I'm sure a lot of people know uh, about. And his background was uh, president and co-founder of Delwina, which I'm hoping that we do touch upon, amongst you know other uh, companies. And is also the co-founder and board member at the Upside, Upside Foundation of Canada. So, Mark, thanks so much for uh, for joining me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, Mark, I'd love to start at the beginning. I mean, I, I alluded to the fact that uh, you know you, like many other Canadians, including myself, are not originally from here. Maybe we can start uh, at the beginning and and talk to me about you know what your childhood looked like, you know, and how you landed up in Canada. Yeah, obviously I grew up in in South Africa. I grew up in Johannesburg, and for one reason or another, I always knew I was leaving South Africa. I, I can't remember making a proactive decision that I was leaving. I knew in my own mind that something was wrong. I didn't want to be there. It was not my fight. I needed to. I needed to get out of there and go somewhere else. And so, I'd always been proactively thinking about leaving and going somewhere else. I come from a family of many doctors. My father. My father was a doctor. My brother's a doctor. My uncle was a doctor. My some somehow my grandmother installed in all of her children that they had to be doctors, which was sort of this Lithuanian Jewish thing, I guess. And they they all became doctors. And my father, from the beginning, said to me, like, you don't want to be a doctor. You want to do something that's much more creative. And you want to do something that you can create value and earn a living while you're not at work. And he always said, you know, if you're a doctor, if you're an accountant, if you're a lawyer, you're or you're, you're a plumber, you're, you're getting paid for a job of work that you're doing. And nothing happens when you're not there. So think about creating, doing something that creates value when you're not there. And I, I often thought about that. But growing up in, in Johannesburg, I sort of rebelled against everything. And so the first, the you know, I was thinking about this before speaking to you, and I, I'm actually in my fourth profession. So my first profession was going to live in a kibbutz and being a farmer. And I was very serious about it, together with a group of about 30 or 40 South Africans. How old were you, Mark, when you uh, when you did that? I was 22. I had a degree in psychology, which was worth nothing, and I um, decided that I was going to throw my lot into communalism and really believed in the whole concept of communalism and changing the world and changing the way things happen. So, so, so Mark, just I, I don't want to interrupt your story, but for those that don't know what a kibbutz is, maybe just incorporate that because I'm sure a lot of people listening don't know what that is. So a kibbutz was something that was developed maybe 100 years ago by the original, there, there was always many idealists looking at going to live in Israel. And there were a lot of people who were looking at, well, how can we really change the fundamentals of the world? And they came up with this communal 
idea of a kibbutz, which meant a society where nobody owned anything. So a typical kibbutz has three, four, five hundred people. You don't own anything personally. The kibbutz owns everything and the kibbutz is responsible for everything. All the way from the moment you have a child, the child is a child of the kibbutz or the com- or the communists, essentially, grows up there. You own n- none of your own possessions and it really is from each according to his ability and to each according to his need. So you'll get housing, you'll get food, you'll get everything. But if you need a car, you'll get a car or there's communal cars that you need. Or if you need something else or a trip or a, or a, a television set or whatever it is, you'll get it when you when you can get it. And the whole idea was that people would be able to not create their own personal wealth, but you'd have a community which would create enough wealth to deal with everybody. And it would be able to manage a process that allowed a much fairer system. Kids would not be at the disadvantage of whatever parents they grew into, but the community as a whole was going to bring them up. And it was really an experiment to try to change the world. And this experiment lasted probably through till the 90s of last century. Um, when I went to go and live in a kibbutz in the middle of the 70s, it was already starting to be moving downhill. But before I went, I thought if I'm leaving South Africa, maybe here's a chance to sort of change everything about my environment, change everything about the way things are doing. And I was fascinating by, fascinated by this experiment. And together with a group of 30 or 40 people, we moved onto a kibbutz. And I I had every intention of spending the rest of my life there. When I got there, I worked in the orchards and mostly actually worked in the fields um, growing peanuts. And I thought about the idea of working in the garage and being a a mechanic. I was always really interested in mechanical things and, and automated things. But within about three months, I realized, this was not at all what I signed up for. And there was nothing that resembled anything that I thought I was getting into. And, you know, I woke up one day and I said, you know, I've done no preparation from a professional perspective. I've done no preparation from a plan B because I really put everything into this. And I I, I discovered when I got there that in its own way, it was no different to anything else. People still acted the same way there was still a level of of individualism there that didn't change anything. And there was certain elements of it. I won't go into it now. I'm happy to talk about it another time. But for one reason or another, I decided that this was not for me and that I really wanted to do something else. And I had every intention of finding something else. And I'd read this book called um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. If If you've never read it, it's a fascinating book all about the relationship between the mechanical world and the physical world and doing things. And I, I, I thought, I'm going to go and study to be a, a, a motor a, a car mechanic because I can go anywhere in the world. I can always earn a profession. I can always grow a business. And I was all ready to do that when I bumped into somebody who I owe a big debt of gratitude to, who said to me, what you've got to realize is that what was motor car mechanics of the 60s now that you're in the late 70s, is what computers are. Computers really are this automated system of doing things and this automated way of where the world is going from a, from a, from a, an engineering perspective that would be much more fulfilling for you and much more intellectually stimulating and much more interesting. Why don't you rather go and study computer science? And I started looking into it 
when I did my undergraduate, I'd done some some programming courses, which I loved, and decided I'm going into, into computer science and went to Jerusalem where I studied com- computer science, Lo- absolutely loved every second of it, and decided that this was where I was going to put my career. And I had the very fortunate experience of really working on very small computers because the economy was in the crapper in Israel by then in the early 80s. And the only way they could afford to do anything was to try to put big computer programs into these tiny little computers. And I got this fantastic experience while I was there and working in Tel Aviv. In the early 80s, in, in 82, I decided I was going to go traveling and see where I really wanted to live and what I wanted to do. And I had one brother in Australia, one in Canada, and I decided to come to Canada because it was closer to the what I considered the center of the world being California. And I came to Canada with the intention of spending a year here. And, um, I'm and, and what, what, what year was that? 1982. That year is now coming on 40 years next, next year. So I've been here for a, that year has extended into many years. I was absolutely fortunate when I arrived in Canada because this was when the personal computer was just being invented. The first PCs, and I don't know if many people listening or, or, or listening to this are aware, but Atari and Commodore were both founded in Toronto. And Toronto was a... I, I didn't know that. But, but from the Tremil family, it was one family that actually started both of them. And there was a huge hive of activity down on Queen Street and on College Street on people hacking Atari 800s and Commodore 64s. And I fell into that marketplace and absolutely loved it. I was completely enthralled by the idea of where this was all going and where these computers were going and the idea of a personal computer and a computer on every desk and every single person in the in the world having a, a computer. And I got the bug. I, I started seeing what people in California were doing. I started seeing what was happening in Silicon Valley and I said, I want to do that. I want to, I want to make a software company. Like I am completely obsessed. I was completely obsessed by the vision of what you could do with these PCs and where they were going. And I just became so obsessed that whoever I saw, I started asking them, like, what would you do if you had your own computer? And what would you do if you could have a computer on your desk? And what would you do with it? My to drive my, my wife completely crazy because she said, like, can't you talk about anything else? And you're driving all of our friends crazy. But I, I was just so obsessed with it that I just couldn't help myself. And I was lucky that I bumped into two other South Africans who had very complementary expertise levels to me. One of them was Bert Amato, who was a, a project manager at IBM and really knew how to run big groups of engineers. And the other was Dennis Benny, who really knew how to run a business because growing up in a kibbutz, I didn't know anything about anything to do with, with business. And um, together with them, we decided that we were going to start a software company here in Toronto um, that could easily compete with the biggest of the big in California or anywhere in the world. And we started this company called Delrina in 1988. And we had this idea of automating the world. And here in Toronto, there was a very big business called Moore Business Forms. These people were the biggest printers of paper forms in the world. They had the top two floors of First Canadian Place. And I looked at that and I thought, what a dumbass business. Like, who in the world wants pieces of paper to print forms on when you've got a computer that can have a laser printer, print out a form, maybe one day electronically send information from one desk to another? And we went out to go and change that. 
I remember we went to go and pitch more business farms and we went to First Canadian Place. I lugged this big compact computer to the top floor. These guys said to me, forget it, guy. You're never going to change this. This is entrenched the way people use paper business forms. And they, they told me to go with their VP to Buffalo where they had suburbs where were full of warehouses of paper forms. And I just said, like, I'm going to close. We're going to just shut these guys down completely. We're going to prove that we could really simply just take a simple concept like a business form and, and automate it. And um, that was our first product. It was a product called Perform, and we launched it. We found a group of great developers, and it started doing really nicely when the um, we started getting some real big corporations and some real big interesting customers. And when the first Gulf War broke out, when the U.S. Um, attacked Iraq, we got a massive contract from the U.S. government, from the military, because they wanted to automate every business form that was dealing with sending troops over and running the entire back end of that. And then one day another South African came knocking on my door, a guy by the name of Tony Davis. And he said to me, I want to work work with you guys. And I said, why? And he said, because I've got an idea and I think you guys can help me with the idea. And I said, what's your idea? And he said, like, we've all got these PCs. We've all got these computers on our desk, but they don't communicate with each other. We can't communicate. We can't share data. I know this sounds pretty dumb, but but we, we all had these computers which only spoke to little floppy disks. We weren't speaking to each other. And he said, when we want to speak to each other, we send a fax. So I've come up with a piece of software that lets you use your computer to send a fax to anybody else and receive a fax on your computer. And that was WinFax. That was it. I named it WinFax. Tony came and worked with us. And that product took off like nothing I've ever seen. We went to Comdex, we launched WinFax, and an entire conference of 100,000 people were talking about turning your computer into a thing that can communicate and send faxes. We immediately, I went back and I said to everybody, performs interesting, let's keep it going. But now we are the WinFax company. And within six months, we had 800 employees. We were shipping worldwide. We did an IPO in Toronto and NASDAQ. We were doing about $150 million of sales, and we sold 40 million copies of WinFax over the next couple of years. Still the same three founders, me, Bert, and Dennis. Tony was running his WinFax group, and we created a powerhouse out of this thing that was um, unheard of at the time. So, so Mark, I want to come, I want to get back to WinFax in particular, but I wanted to go back just quickly. What was so interesting listening to your story was your use of the words love, like you loved something or you were obsessed with something. You're clearly an individual that is driven by passion. And, and I, I view myself through that same lens. And the question I have for you is how important is passion in building one's career? Because I think it's one of the central tenets of being successful is actually doing something you love. But I wanted to get your take on it because you definitely speak as a person who is clearly passionate. I've always said that I'm, I'm so fortunate that my hobby and my career is the same thing. You know, even at this stage of my life, when colleagues of mine are retiring, people are saying, have you ever thought of retiring? And I said, well, what am I going to do? I'll just do the same thing, except not earn any money doing it while I'm doing it. So I'm very, I've been very fortunate in that the passion that I've had for what I've done is something that I've found completely fascinating and interesting. And, and, and I do draw a parallel 
between my first career living on a kibbutz to my second career being a computer programmer and my third career running a software company. You know, again, I don't know if too many people know, but if you go and look at Silicon Valley and you go and look at Silicon Valley in the early 70s and the early 80s when when I was doing that, the same people who were in the counterculture revolution of the 60s were the, it's no coincidence that the counterculture of the 60s and the Grateful Dead and people like that grew up in in Palo Alto and that Apple grew up in, in the same part of the world. It, it, it's not coincidental. The same people who were part of the counterculture who thought they were changing the world in the 60s and the 70s were the people who started the computer revolution of the 80s. Not universally, but for many, many people who did that. And so a lot of my peers were these same people who had a similar attitude towards mine. They thought one way they were going to change the world, and then they got obsessed. And and frankly, I would say that the, that we were completely of the belief that technology was going to change the world and change the world for the better. And even as recently as when the internet launched, you know, in the Arab Spring and the freedom of information and the ability to give people access to information, and until friggin' Mark, Zuckerberg came and screwed this all up and made, made my life made all of our lives a misery. And we saw the negative aspect of this. I actually thought it was all going to be positive. And obviously, the last couple of years, it's gone a completely different di- direction of where things have drawn. And I'm not so sure anymore that it's all positive at all. But that's that's obviously a different topic altogether. So going back to the Del Reno, Winfax days, one of the things that I know that you guys did was you bundled WinFax for free with PCs. And you had really one of the first, if not the first, I mean, I couldn't think of it, I couldn't find another one, you know, freemium models. I mean, A, talk to people about that, what what led to that decision. And, you know, in hindsight, was a brilliant strategy. But there wasn't a model like that prior to that. So so where did that come from? And uh, and, and how big of a part of WinFax's kind of growth would you attribute to that single decision? So I, I know it's become a, a very hackneyed word, the, the word disrupt, but I've always been of the opinion that the aspect of, of business or the aspect of doing th- things that keeps me awake most at night are the things that I should have done that I wasn't aware of at the time. I'm always sort of looking at, what should I have been thinking about or what should I have been doing or what should we have been doing that we're not necessarily actively or proactively thinking about? And that often leads you, if you think like that, to think about what can I do that's quite differently that will change things dramatically. And that's what happened with WinFax. We, we launched WinFax and it was interesting because we th- there were a bunch of other products that let you send a fax from your computer. But we came up with this idea that there were a hundred different kinds of pieces of hardware that you could put into your computer that that let you communicate with the modem, and they all came with some substandard piece of software. We said, let's come out with some excellent piece of software that'll work with every single board, and we started selling it, and we started doing quite nicely, and we called this thing WinFax. But we thought, are we going to get everybody in the world, every single person who owns a computer to use WinFax? And that's what kept me awake at night. It was, how can we get to a point that every single person on every single computer has a copy of WinFax and we can monetize this one way or the other 
as they use this communication tool. And so we started off, we went to we went to some of the computer manufacturers who were starting to bundle communication modems in their computers. And we said to them, you know, you got this modem in there that can send a fax, but without software, it of course isn't going to work. And they said, okay, we want to bundle your piece of software. We'll pay you a couple of dollars to do it. And we, and I looked at that and I thought, well, how, how am I going to make any money out of that? By getting one or two dollars from every IBM computer that ships, if, if IBM ships 20 million computers, big deal. You know, it's not, it's not going to change the world. And so we came up with this concept where we went to them and said, okay, here's the deal. We're going to call our retail product WinFax Pro, and we're going to sell you WinFax Lite at a very low price, but branding is all that counts. You need to put a sticker on the box that says it includes WinFax Lite. You have to always call it WinFax Lite. And as soon as they install, the screen's going to pop in and say, here's WinFax Lite. If you really want the, the full version that has cover pages and a million other capabilities, click here, send, us, send a fax to Delrina, and we will ship you WinFax Pro for $20 or $30 or what, what, whatever we were selling it with. And we started doing that. And after a couple of months, we were sort of sitting around one day and saying, okay, that's working really nicely, but how do we get this into every single computer? And we said, let's just forget about monetizing WinFax Lite. Let's give it away for free. And nobody was giving anything away for free. And we, I remember we called up a couple of OEMs. We called up Dell and we said to Dell, here's the deal. We don't want you to pay us anymore. We only want one thing, that you promise us that you, you, we need a, a contract that you will ship WinFax with every single computer and you will brand it as WinFax Lite and you'll pay for the disk that goes with it and for the, you know, it won't cost us any money. And they said, sure, you've, you've got a great brand. You've got a great reputation. You're winning all the awards for the best software. We'll ship WinFax Lite. And the next thing we started upgrading people like crazy and we sold 50 million copies of WinFax before we knew it and it was pouring out the door and we we sort of, you know, afterwards we said that was what we meant. We, we didn't mean it. it I, I can tell you about another 30 ideas that I had that went nowhere, but the beauty of our industry is when something succeeds, you just ignore all the stuff that fails and make believe that that didn't happen. I mean, I tried to come out with a thing called the WinFax machine and we, we, we shipped a scanner that would, because otherwise, how do you get, to, there was no other way of getting a document into the, that, that was already printed out to fax, and it was a complete failure. Hearing that story, I was reading your bio this morning on your website, and I loved the first line, but I wanted to dive into it. It says, a big idea is just as difficult to accomplish as a small one. My advice to entrepreneurs, go big or go home. Why do you believe that to be true? You know, because I kind of understand what you're trying to say, but... To me, it feels like being a, a, an auto, you know, a, a motorbike mechanic, which is a small idea, it doesn't seem as difficult to me as building a software company. So, so maybe just talk to me about what, what you mean by that statement. Yeah, I mean, if my third career was running Del Reno, my fourth career was becoming a venture capitalist. And one of the things that I've learned about being a venture capitalist is it takes about five or 10 years to learn to become a good VC. Like, it really irks me, all these people who sort of become a VC, open up their own firm the next day and think that they actually know what they're doing because you don't. It really takes a long time to get the right instincts, to get the right feels, to get the right aspects and to really become focused on what you're doing 
and how you're doing it. And one of the things is risk, because when you're a venture capitalist, part of what happens is that you invest in companies that fail. And in the tech industry, when something fails in, in my industry, when it fails, it means it becomes a zero. And so we discovered that when we, after analyzing this for years, the difference between good VCs and great VCs are a few mega hits, a few really, really good returns. So if you look at the venture capital industry, there's a bunch of people who do badly, ignore them. There's a bunch of people who return money, ignore them. There's a bunch of people who give you a reasonable return, but not much better than many other investors. And they do fairly well, and many of them do well on their fees, separate issue. But then there's a bunch of VCs that do really, really well. And if you look at those that do really, really well, it really is because of a few really, really big successes. And those big successes are often investments that they make that return a few times the, fu the fund. So if you've got a, a $75 million fund, that's an investment that you put five or $6 million into a company and it returned you $80 million. And if you can have a few of those in your fund, then you do so well that you're returning five, eight times money to your investors and everybody's happening. And what we learned along that way is that those companies have to be big ideas. Small ideas don't return hundreds of millions of dollars. And one of the biggest lessons I learned, and I learned this from Dennis Benny, was he said to me, like, you can spend all your time focusing on an idea that gets this big, and it's actually the same amount of effort in a company that gets that big. So you might as well go for it and create the one that's big, because if you're going to fail, you might as well fail at the big one rather than at the small one, because if you win, you win big. In the VC industry, we often refer to this as comparing it to playing baseball. If you look at playing baseball, your team can do really well, can do reasonably well by lots of base hits. You can bring in a few people, you get someone on first, someone on second, then you, you start circling and you start bringing people home. But really what makes the difference is that home run. When you swing for the fence and you hit that home run and your bases are loaded and the next thing you get four runs because you bring in three and you get yourself a home run. The reality is that if you don't wildly swing, you will never get a, a, a home run. So you've now got to decide, do I swing? Because if I miss, I'm out. Or do I swing and bring everybody home? Or do I just hit gently and bring one more runner in and keep doing that? And that's the same thing here, is that if you don't swing, you are never going to get a home run. Like it, it really is, is swinging for the fences. And that's the aspect of, of, you know, if you don't go for it, you're not going to make it. And the second aspect is if you're going to put all this effort into it, do something worthwhile because you can create something ridiculously big. And we've been fortunate as, as, as VCs. We, we've had a few companies that have done that and have returned four or five times our fund, which has made a huge difference to us. So, so Mark, one of the unique parts about your background is that unlike a lot of VCs that kind of come purely from a financial background, you are an operator, right? And, and you transition from operating to venture capital. A, how much does that help you? And B, how difficult was that shift for you personally? A, I think it's important, but I think a combination is important. I'm, I'm very lucky to have a managing partner, Sophie, that I work with who has a financial background. And she looks at things one way and I look at things another way. 
and consensually we come to an agreement. But I think one without the other is a real problem because if you don't have the operating and the and in some cases the te- the technical background and you're investing in tech companies, I don't believe that you're going to get there. I, I do believe that a big part of being a VC is instinct. And it's something that you can learn from being an operator and it's something you can learn from being more technical. And on the other hand, you've got to make sure that somebody's counting the dollars and cents and the fundamentals and the operational side and the fund economics and everything else. So I think it's important, but it's not independently important. You do need a combination. The transition, for me, the transition was quite easy because I was ready for it. I've been at this for a long time and I I was ready for it. But, you know, I've worked with a lot of people in the VC industry who have struggled with how do you become a VC who gives advice to other people and at least half the time nobody listens to you. And so the challenge you've got is that if you can't live in an environment where nobody's, if, if you've been a CEO for a long time, you get used to people listening to you. You say, I need you to do this and people do that because that's your job and that's their job. And all of a sudden you're working with people and you say, I need you to do this. And then they come back two months later and you say, how's it going? And they say, nah, I actually decided not to do what you said. And you say, what are you talking about? And they say, well, I think about this all day. You don't. And they're often right. Sometimes they're wrong, but they're sometimes really right. So you've 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 got to be comfortable with working with, with people and empowering other people much more than as an operator. You have to unlearn that whole aspect of being a CEO and and being in charge and and telling and not delegating as much as you do. Here you're delegating everything. And you have to get really comfortable with delegating and everything, which is why it's all about the people. You know, if there's one lesson I learned from operating companies and from venture capital businesses is that the two most important aspects of every single business I've ever been involved with and that I'm investing in is the leadership team and the corporate culture. Nothing is more important than than those two things. If you've got the wrong culture, you will not succeed. If you've got the wrong leaders, you will not succeed. If you have both of them, you've got a chance. So, so people talk about that a lot. And what, what, what I want to ask you is specifically, are there any patterns that you've been able to pick up on for success and failure as it relates to the leadership team and the culture? Like what kind of leadership teams are successful? What kind of cultures are successful? And then what are those that you've seen? Like, I just know, like the great product, great idea, no chance. You know, if there's any that stick in your mind, that'd be, that'd be great. I mean, as I do this more, I get less convinced that I have all the answers because I've seen so many different kinds of companies succeed and so many, so many different elements. I think part of it is going back to what you spoke about, about passion and and really being at it. Because for me, a lot of the focus of our investing is investing in a team or a CEO who's at that stage of their life where they are going to succeed no matter what it takes. Again, using all these words like pivots and, and, and et cetera are irrelevant. These people will do whatever it takes to succeed. They will make sure that this thing works. And if they need to change the basis of their company and they need to change the direction and they need to change where the company's going and how it's doing it and what it's doing it, they will make those changes in order to succeed. And the ones that don't make those changes for the wrong reason, like their ego or their own being in charge 
or they're not admitting that they were wrong or not listening to other people while they're doing it, when you look back, those are the ones that failed. It, in my business, it's much easier to look backwards and say that's why a person failed than to look forwards and say that's why they're going to succeed. And the rearview mirror, everything always seems obvious. But when you look forward, nothing seems seems obvious. I mean, I have, we have a company right now in our portfolio called Hopper, which is doing astoundingly well. And it's in the travel business in the middle of a pandemic. And this company continues to do well and and impress us. It brings in investors. It brings in customers. It continues to do well. And we've been, after we were invested in this company for four years, four years, my partner and I used to joke with each other and say, like, when are we shutting this company down? When are we not giving them any more money? Like, when are we telling this CEO to putting him out of his misery and saying, guy, you got to stop doing this. You're never going to succeed. And then something happened in year five and six. And today he's worth, this company's worth billions of dollars. So it does sometimes defy logic. And sometimes these companies go through stages where they, where their timing is wrong or the luck is wrong. And they manage to change their luck and they manage to change their timing and they manage to get them. Sometimes they they don't. I, you, you know, I think one of the interesting things about corporate culture, particularly as an early investor, is for a lot of companies, corporate culture gets created in the first six months and lasts the next 60 years. If you look at a company like Microsoft, the way they behave to each other, the way they relate to each other internally, the way, the way they speak to each other externally was defined by Bill Gates in the first six, six months. The same with Microsoft, IBM, Google, Facebook. Go back in history and have a look at the way they used to do things, the way they used to behave. All of a sudden, when there's 10,000 people in the company, they still act the same way. Apple still acts the same way as, as Steve Jobs set it up in, in the beginning. And those first six, six months, if you create an environment where you empower people, where you trust people, where you speak to other people with respect, where you treat treat people well, that shines through. And the companies that don't, unbelievable. You can never change it. It's really, really hard to change corporate culture. I imagine that's why a lot of M&A transactions don't work is because I think people underestimate how difficult it is to uh, ch- change cultures or amalgamate cultures. I think you're quite right, and particularly in the tech industry. Most M&A, you know, happens and within two years, none of the original people are there. If it's a good product and an enduring product, it does well. But most M&A that happens because of people does not succeed. Well, Mark, I, we've already run long and I promised you I wouldn't take too much time. But for those that are listening that, that, that would love to, you know, who have this kind of aspiration to be in VC, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they're really passionate about it. Maybe it's what they've, you know, they think is sexy or whatever it might be. What What's some advice you would give to those young people that, that want to be in your shoes down the road? So if you look at the numbers, you have much more chance of becoming rich and making money running companies than being a VC, particularly in Canada. So don't, you know, don't necessarily do it if you think that it's a it's a good way to make money, because while some VCs do make money and do really well, it's not as universal as you may think. The second thing about it is that it's literally a profession that you need to dedicate somewhere between 20 to 40 years to. And I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous, but it's the fact. 
It takes you about five years, five to 10 years to get good at what you're doing. And then you're making 10-year investments. So you really are going to get the fruit of your labor and the best investments you make and the best exits and the best everything from year 15 onwards. And so most people who start this profession have an entire career first. And then at age 45, decide I'm going to become a VC. Then they start doing really well in their 60s and then they stop working. So if you're doing this, make sure you still got 20 years left in your in your in your professional life and that you've got lots of patience because one of the biggest lessons about venture capital is patience. You know, if you the more we think about these are two and three and four-year investments, the more convinced we are that they're five to ten-year investments. Yes, some of them have an earlier exit. And you know, we invested in in Radiant Six, it gave us a 28 times return in three and a half years. But that's the exception. That's that's not the rule. Um, when that happens, you just have a big party and say, okay, I've done that, but it's not going to happen that 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 often. Most of these investments take many, many years. You've got to be very, very patient. And you have to be working, because of that, you have to be working in a team where I believe you, you the, the partners in your team have to be as as you have to trust them as much as I, I you do your spouse. I have a relationship with Sophie where I trust her as much as I do with, as, as my wife, and I need to because she makes decisions, I make decisions, and I've been together with her now for 22 years. So it's a long time, and you need to really, really know that you can work incredibly well, that you can trust these people, and that you can do things in a, in a reasonable way. And our firm, one of the one of the things that we've done that works, and again, we did this without learning this from anybody else, we did it ourselves. We have a decision in our investment team that we need complete un- unanimous support for every single deal that we do, no matter how senior or junior anybody is. So we've got five people in our investment team right now, and anybody can veto a deal anytime until the dollars leave the bank and go into it. And that stops you from being about getting emotionally attached to your deals. It stops you from making the deals for the wrong reason. And it ensures that people who have a completely different perspective on investment to you and a good reason not to do a deal will stop a deal from being done. And it's very frustrating when you go through a huge amount of diligence and you stop a deal at the end. But it, I believe it's, it's good discipline to have and it does allow it. At the same time, I'm constantly astounded how many failures we have. The success rate of tech companies is not very high. The good news is they high risk and high return. So when you get a return, you get a really good return. Anecdotally, what is the success rate, in your opinion? Of every 10 that we do, we have two really big successes. We have three medium successes and five failures. And the failures are often go to zero. You can spend months or years on a failing company trying to get 20% of your money back, or you can spend all your time on a successful company that that you can help go from 4x to to 10x. It's quite clear where you spend your time. Well, Mark, that was really interesting, and I I loved hearing the story. It's not often you have uh, the opportunity to speak to someone who's had four separate careers, so I appreciate that. Well, it's funny, you know, going from somebody going to live in a commune to to having the word capitalist in their, in their, in their <laughs> I was going to allude to that dichotomy. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Mark, for, for those that are listening that, that would love to 
follow along on your journey and or reach out because I think BrightSpark might be a great partner for them. What's the best way that they can uh, go about doing that? I mean, just contact brightspark.com. You know, if it's a deal, contact info at brightspark.com or just email me. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an email junkie. Email just destroyed my Winfax business, so I'm always indebted to it. So <laughs> I guess at brightspark.com, you know, just, just email me. I'd, I'll answer anybody's email. Well, once again, Mark, very much appreciate it. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you. And, I, you know, I have to add that, you know, we're about to do some interesting alternative work with Firepower as a partner, and we're thrilled to be doing it. Well, thank you very much. We are too. And I'm even more thrilled after having this conversation. So, so thanks again. And uh, for those listening, until next time, thank you. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.